The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box. Here are your headlines today. U.S. markets jump with the Nasdaq notching its best day since March, while Asian equities also continue to climb as Omicron fears recede. Presidents Biden and Putin square off in a two-hour phone call, with the American leader threatening sanctions if Russia invades Ukraine, as the White House vows to take a tough line. As President Biden looked President Putin in the eye and told him today, that things we did not do in 2014, we are prepared to do now. Very good morning, everybody. Evergrande shares sink to a record low as it reportedly misses an offshore debt headline and seemingly heads for default now, while the fallout also hitting Kaiser with shares suspended after the company missed its own debt deadline. Now, Nestle is cutting its stake in L'Oreal to 20% with a $10 billion share sale back to the French cosmetics brand at €400 a share. Parts of these markets soaring yesterday as investors very much parked aside to some of the fears that have been circling around interest rates and this new variant. And you can see this expressed very much through the Nasdaq, a rally of 3%. So we haven't spoken about gains like that for a while. An incredible move to the upside and now just trading about 3.25% off the all-time highs for that Nasdaq. Uh, the other markets also trimming some of those uh, recent losses to the S&P 500, recovering a lot of territory, that hawkish a tilt from Jay Powell recently that rocked the markets. The recovery uh, very much happening in trade yesterday as these markets claw back those losses. A 2% pop there. Apple, one of the big moving stocks for the market, which again tells you how instrumental having some of these big name stocks are back in the green. What that does for the broader market sentiment, just 1.2% off its record highs. When it comes to the Dow, just 2.3% off its all-time highs as well. So very strong session playing out there. Goldman Sachs, in fact, the top performer for the Dow, but right across the market, you saw that strength. Let me take you to one of the big performing sectors, and we did have fresh records again for real estate, but also technology, and this is how it looked. Apple, 3.5% gain. I mentioned uh, early in the week, we had those fears around the iPhone 13 supply chain bottlenecks. Investors really just getting back on board this stock that, this week. The other big key players, you can see Tesla, momentum stock, uh, as it's often called, very strong, 4.2% outpace, outpacing the market. 2.5 on Meta, that's the Facebook, uh, former Facebook company, uh, 2.1 on Netflix and uh, Alphabet uh, running strongly. The only exception here, Twitter just fading slightly. The Asian markets, given this handover, we are seeing a strong trade for Japanese stocks very much in lockstep. Australia, another market that typically follows Wall Street, also trading up uh, beyond 1%. The other markets, so we are still closely watching developments around Evergrande. Uh, that's a big one for the markets too, just to see how this property developer will be handled in China with fears around uh, the payment uh, that's been made to some creditors at this stage. And you can see Shanghai is positive, but Hong Kong does trade weaker. I want to 
get to the European markets, and this is how we finished out the trade yesterday. You can see just how strong these markets were. Uh, very strong ranges for the, uh, the likes of the DAX and also the CAC in France. So these markets, as you can see, up close to 3%. So a very positive session playing out, 100 odd points to on the FTSE. And the range now, 7,339 takes that towards the high end of the range. And we'd had a lot of selling on the back of the November levels, which were the high water mark uh, really for these markets in Europe. But the selling was fairly aggressive, taking us off those levels. This buying has been so aggressive, it's taking us back into those ranges now. So it has been an incredible session that played out yesterday and right across to the periphery as well. Let's see what's in store for today because that's quite instrumental to see whether we can follow up on the back of what's been a strong session. And you can see we are perched higher on US futures. So that's a, a positive signal for these markets this morning that may be looking for more territory. Now, in an exclusive CNBC interview, Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon warned that investors could be too optimistic about the economic impact of the pandemic. The market certainly, and this morning is another indication, is kind of looking past the variant as something that's going to be slowing down economic activity. But we're still not completely out of the pandemic. There's uncertainty that comes from that, and that uncertainty is going to affect economic activity. Well, let's pick up and talk about uh, U.S. President Biden and the meeting or at least the discussions he had with uh, President Putin. Uh, Joe Biden has threatened the Russian president with economic sanctions if Moscow launches an attack on Ukraine. In a phone call between the two leaders, Biden also said he is continuing to work with NATO countries to bolster Ukrainian territorial sovereignty, while President Putin requested guarantees that NATO is not planning further eastbound expansion. The call comes amid an apparent Russian military build-up around the Ukrainian border, which has been stoking fears of a possible incursion. Now, White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan stressed the United States would take more decisive action than it had during Russia's annexation of the Crimean Peninsula in 2014, adding that the onus is now on the Russian leader to react. We still do not believe that President Putin has made a decision. What President Biden did today was lay out very clearly the consequences if he chooses to move. He also laid out an alternative path, an alternative path that is fundamentally in keeping with the basic principles and propositions that have guided America in the Euro-Atlantic area for the past 70 years. And ultimately, we will see in the days ahead through actions, not through words, uh, what course of action Russia chooses to take. The Biden administration has also said it would prioritize working with Germany to halt Nord Stream 2's natural gas pipeline if uh, Russia decides to invade Ukraine. The pipeline, which is built but not activated, is already facing legal delays from Germany. Let's get to Timothy Ash then, senior emerging uh, markets uh, strategist. Uh, at uh, Blue Bay Asset Management. Uh, Timothy, good morning to you and thanks for joining us. Uh, it, it feels like since 2014, we've been in this situation a number of times before where troops have been built up on the Ukrainian border. Does this one look different to you? It, it does. I mean, the US intelligence reports have been uh, in fairly alarming and very different from April and September. They're suggesting both in the type of troops and the support infrastructure, so armor, fuel, uh, medical facilities, etc., 
that Putin is is kind of serious this time and he's ready to go in. And and that's really, uh, you know, he's pushing. He's, he's, he's clearly unhappy with the status quo. He's unhappy with the status of the Minsk and Normandy peace uh, talk. He's unhappy that Ukraine is being, being rearmed by the West uh, and he wants something different, right? And and I think yesterday in the summit, Biden didn't really give him anything. So so the ball's back in Putin's court, effectively. As we look at the coalition against Putin at this stage, would you say it's changed and is stronger uh, since uh, 2014? I mean, clearly, uh, there were opportunities to stiffen resolve, and yet Nord Stream 2 continued to be constructed. You felt that there were Western European countries that were rather reluctant to uh, stick to some of the uh, stiffer terms of resistance. Um, what about now? I don't think it's, well, quite interesting. If you go back three weeks, I would have said weaker. You know, the West is is struggling with democracy. The Biden presidency, I don't think, is a, a particularly strong one at this point in time. Uh, Ukraine itself politically is, is quite challenged. So this idea is what is Putin up to? Uh, there's a great opportunity for Putin, you know, if he wants to go in and change the status quo on the ground. It's kind of now. But what's changed in the last couple of weeks uh, is remarkable in a way that the French and the Germans, some of the continental Europeans who were very sceptical about U.S. intelligence and about Russia. I mean, they they were willing, they wanted to talk to Putin more. But actually, uh, U.S. intelligence seems to have shared uh, information with uh, its allies that has done a 180 in terms of uh, where their position are now. You know, they're all ally, aligned behind Biden in this this pretty tough sanctions response. So so what was in that intelligence must have been absolutely compelling. The Americans must have been telling its allies in Ukraine that Putin is poised to strike and we need to do something now. Timothy, what do you make of the timing, though? Because uh, we're at a, this point where Putin and Russia want something from the West. Uh, they want the uh, ready client for this Nord Stream 2 product that they've invested a lot of time and money. So why the timing now? Look, Putin wants Ukraine. <laughs> Nord Stream 2 was a way to circumvent and weaken Ukraine because Ukraine is a gas transit country, earns revenue from it. Uh, and if, you know, Ukraine also, if... Putin is dependent on transiting uh, gas through Ukraine. He's, he's less willing to cause a conflict if he has alternative uh, energy supply routes. So uh, I wouldn't focus too much on Nord Stream 2. Timing from Putin's perspective, you know, it's 30 years today since the, the treaty that ended the Soviet Union. Uh, Putin's big on history. Uh, these next few months are, are pretty critical. P Putin, you know, it, it's, a, it's now about his place in history. Ukraine is central to that. In July, he wrote a big essay about the fact that the Ukrainian and Russian peoples are one. Uh, and I think it, we're at a very, very difficult time. And uh, for lots of different reasons, I think it's kind of now or never for Putin in terms of whether he decides to do something very significant in Ukraine uh, to fundamentally change that relationship. I mean, in the end, I think he wants a new treaty with Ukraine to pull Ukraine back under its sphere of influence. You know, and, and that, that seems to be his red line. And the question is, what is he prepared to do to get that? Uh, we've seen before, you know, he annexed Crimea, his forces uh, attacked in Donbass. So he's willing to use military action. Uh, but how much, how aggressive? Uh, and the troop buildup suggests that he is willing to do something very, very significant. 
Timothy, as we talk about the, the latest Russian aggression, it also coincides with a slightly different tone in Brussels, where there have been conversations about a European army. Uh, this uh, suggests that there's more appetite at a European level to put boots on the ground in areas of conflict on the back of Afghanistan and how chaotic the withdrawal was there. How significant is this development? And do you think that you could see a situation down the track where a European army is there ready to stand against the Russians? Not really. I mean, let's be honest about it. Uh, uh, in the end, uh, we've spent the peace dividend. If you think of the end of the Cold War, if you look at the, the reduction in the size of the British army, of armies across across Europe, except Russia, that is, and Russia and Ukraine, who are both rebuilding, uh, in, we have very little now in terms of uh, the number of tanks, for example. I think the, the Germans have gone from 2,000 main battle tanks to, to 100 and odd. You know, uh, I mean... European countries would struggle to f defend Europe against uh, a Russian assault through Ukraine. Uh, I mean, that's staggering if you think about it. And so actually what's going on at the moment between Russia and Ukraine is a, is a threat to European security. I think uh, European leaders and, and NATO, etc., are just beginning to wake up to the size of the threat, I think. Timothy, it's not just um, uh, R Russia, of course, and, and what's happening on the Ukrainian border. We, we've now got this uh, new flank uh, with regard to China and um, the Winter Olympics. And now Australia has decided it's joining this diplomatic boycott um, that's being led by the United States. Um, would you expect um, continental European countries will ultimately come aboard that boycott or will the US and Australia stand alone? Well, I mean, it's a, it's a state of flux. Uh, I mean, what, what, what's kind of interesting, if you, if you bring it back to the, 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 the crisis in Ukraine, is, is the, the Biden administration was supposed to be tough on Russia, right? But actually, uh, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, and, and, uh, refocused the whole, more, more or less, of, of US foreign policy to China as the, the ultimate threat. And, you know, we saw the, the, the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, but actually what we've seen in Russia and Ukraine has been that actually Russia's the threat. Russia is the near-term threat to Western security. China is a, it's a long-term battle for, for hegemony, uh, military, economic with, with the US. But actually, you know, old-style threats remain. Uh, and I think Europe at the moment will be firmly focused on its, uh, its eastern borders rather than China. And, and, and uh, you know, I, the US still, have, I, think, I think, has a lot of convincing to do in terms of its European allies, uh, apart from the British, perhaps, uh, in terms of the threat from China. Timothy, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, very much appreciate your time. Timothy Ash, Senior Emerging Markets, Sovereign Strategist, Blue Bay Asset Management. Elsewhere, Australia will join the list of countries staging a diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Winter Olympics next year. Prime Minister Scott Morrison attributed the decision to alleged human rights abuses, as well as moves from Beijing to slow or block imports from Australia. Coming up on the show, BIS General Manager Augustin Carstens weighs in on Evergrande and backs the PBOC's actions. We'll have more on that next. And it seems like a very good time to remind you about the Squawk Box podcast. Uh, this morning we have more on US-Russia relations and what it means for Nord Stream 2 and its approval. Uh, go to the uh, Spodcast, uh, the, the podcast uh, uh, available from Spotify and Apple Podcasts or anywhere you load your podcasts up.
Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, Let's talk about Weibo. Shares are trading lower on its first day on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. The Chinese social media giant pricing its secondary listing at 272 Hong Kong dollars and 80 cents a share, raising over 380 million dollars. The debut comes amid wider pressure on Chinese technology companies that are facing regulatory scrutiny in both Beijing and Washington. Evergrande shares hitting an all-time low after the company missed another debt payment deadline, potentially marking its first offshore default on public bonds. The property developer continuing to face over $300 billion in unpaid debts. Other Chinese real estate developers are also showing signs of strain. Trading in the much smaller company, Kaiser, was suspended today after it reportedly failed to meet its own $400 million debt obligation. Emily Tan has more on the property sector in China. Evergrande shares sink to a record low after missing a debt payment deadline this week and now at risk of becoming China's biggest defaulter. Failure to make $82.5 million in interest payments would trigger a cross-default on $19 billion of international bonds. Evergrande shares are at their lowest since their November 2009 debut, down 1.6%. The Guangdong provincial government has since stepped in to help manage the fallout, a signal that the developer's failure would be managed. Meantime, Kaisa, its shares were suspended from trade today pending an announcement containing inside information. It too missed a 400 million offshore debt deadline. Reports are that Kaisa is unlikely to make the necessary payments. Non-payment would put the developer into technical default and also trigger a cross-default on offshore bonds totaling $12 billion. For now, the fallout at these mainland developers have been broadly contained, together with policymakers in Beijing becoming more vocal. We continue to follow the developments. In Hong Kong, I'm Emily Tan. Emily, thanks so much for that. And let's just point out the Hong Kong session has reopened for trade and we're continuing to see further pressure on Evergrande with the stock down over 4.3% already. That is a fresh all-time low for this Chinese developer. And obviously the market is continuing to draw its own conclusions about liquidity and the depth of liquidity in this business and the company's ability to service its debt. I will just restate, At this stage, we know that this is a policy story. This is ultimately uh, about the Chinese government's willingness not only to manage this sector, but to decide whether or not to step in and save this business, whether or not to step in and make whole uh, foreign bondholders. I think we're getting an indication uh, at this stage that the Chinese government is prepared to wait and see just how uh, this um, story unfolds before making a, a more significant decision about who will be saved and who won't be, because 
the, the classical approach at the moment has been to step in and encourage consolidation in the sector so that the weak hands ultimately become one or two strong hands. I think what's also notable is, is just the further move we've seen on monetary policy in the last 24 hours. The uh, Chinese uh, central bank cutting rates on its relending facility here by 25 basis points which would be uh, a sign of further support for the rural economy and for smaller businesses. So very targeted actions on the monetary policy front. But at this stage, uh, it seems that the government and the municipal authorities of Guangdong are prepared to let um, this story run a little bit further just to see uh, what consequences it may have for investor appetite for Chinese paper, Steve. Yeah. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning to you, Karen. It's nice to be on the show. Uh, I, I don't think it is just about international investor appetite, although I think international FDI is becoming more and more of an important issue in the equation that the Chinese government is making on this one as well. But, uh, but I'm going back to the George Magnus lines about society as well, because anyone who's read his Red Flags book as well, and there's other excellent literature out there as well, know that this isn't about a Chinese property company called Evergrande as well. Let's be honest about it. How many of our viewers have heard heard of this company two years ago when it was still one of the world's largest property company. I think many of us have to hold our hands up and say we either knew nothing or very little about Evergrande. This is about the Chinese growth story. This is about what is the driver of Chinese growth if it isn't property and is Evergrande a light outlier? Well, I think we all know that Evergrande isn't an outlier. Evergrande is at the centre of what has been going on in broader China, i.e. there has been speculation on property, there has been overbuilding on property, there are tens of thousands of un used units out there which are entirely speculatory as well. There are potentially the issues about the ghost cities, which we haven't talked about much as well. This is about the bank debt attached to that growth as well, the bank debt attached to that property sector. It's also about whether um, the country has an alternative growth mechanism as well once property is taken out of the equation. Because as we all know from property collapses around the world, property cannot go up forever, not at the fevered level uh, that the Chinese have been seeing as well. So I think this is much broader than a company called Evergrande. It's about growth. It's about municipal um, revenues. It's about banks uh, and bank debts as well. But it's also, more importantly, about society. And I think this is where the CCP uh, really is doing a lot of soul searching and thinking about how on earth we do this next. I think the FDI and the international bondholder is important, but I think it's way down the pecking list of importances uh, for the, the, the society and indeed the government in China. Steve, good morning to you. Nice to have you back on board. And I just want to pick up on the, the whole um, reason why we're talking about this. I mean, there was concern in markets that there could be contagion, that this is the Lehman event for China and whether it can control it, uh, whether it's a, a runaway train, it, it has been a big question for a lot of investors. And you've seen those targeted policy moves, the triple R, to free up cash and uh, ensure there's liquidity across the system. Easy money conditions, as we know, can inflate a lot of assets and bring money back into certain areas of the market where you might see more constrained behaviour. So there has already been somewhat of a policy response. Let's just see how targeted it becomes after this. I mean, we're talking about very large debts. You talk about Kaiser today. It's 400 million in terms of uh, the debt deadline. That's a huge amount of money that uh, you must see the company come up with. And I think that just goes to the, the growth story. It's been so rapid. We are talking about huge amounts of money at this stage. Now, in terms of the future, 
There is talk, of course, uh, that you need consolidation in this market and to wind down some of the debts. But there's still rapid growth. And uh, the question whether that's going to be enough for investors to come back in, support some of these uh, companies that are hard hit at this point, but uh, buy in perhaps still to the story that there is going to be huge urbanization across China for many years to come. So let's just see where that investor comes from, because it also feels as though the U.S. investor may be a little bit shut out of this market lately, and it may be down to more domestic players. Very interestingly, the Bank of International Settlements isn't actually coming down hard on China and its response just yet. Listen to this. The Bank of International Settlements General Manager, Agustin Carstens, has praised the PBOC's handling of Evergrande. I presume he means after um, the, um, uh, the, the problem has become apparent rather than before, because I don't think anyone can approve of what happened to Evergrande before the crisis hit, can we? But anyway, uh, Agassin's Carson has praised the PBOC's handling of Evergrande, telling CNBC the central bank has been sending the right signals. For me, it's very difficult to, to judge about the, how authorities are dealing with the circumstance. I'm respectful of their actions. Uh, these type of uh, situations are not easy to deal with, but uh, I think that uh, they have been trying to handle it as best as they can. Uh, what is important is to send signals. Uh, as, as, as we all know, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the central bank has tried to be doing their best in terms of looking into, into broader issues and, and not in particular about the Evergrande episode, and I think those actions have been spot on. Interesting, because the Bank of International Settlements, in my lifetime, and I know Jeff feels about this as well, haven't really pulled their punches. But anyway, look, Carson's also backed, and again, interesting, also backed the range of strategies being employed by central banks around the world. It's appropriate to have a different responses just because uh, economies are, are at different stage. Uh, inflation is not a, a, a universal uh, phenomena at this stage. And as a matter of fact, pretty much all central banks are still concerned of not uh, taking a, a rapid uh, or, or, or unexpected uh, measures uh, that could uh, affect uh, the growth prospects. So I think it's a, it, it is spot on to have different responses in different countries. One of the issues that characterizes this recovery period uh, is the fact precisely that we have divergent paths. In particular, this is very marked between advanced and emerging market economies. No, I think that's interesting. I'm actually still reading the transcript from uh, Agustin Carstens as well, but we, we can come back to this a little bit later on as well. Okay, and and for more on the interview with uh, Agustin Carstens and to find out uh, why he's calling for greater regulation of decentralised crypto platforms, uh, check out CNBC.com. Karen. Meantime. A study by Pfizer has shown that its vaccine may only partially protect against the Omicron variant even to people who are double vaccinated. A scientist for the company said there is, quote, a very large drop in neutralization compared with other variants. But the study found that patients who are double vaccinated and who had already recovered from a prior infection saw better results suggesting a booster dose would help. BioNTech is set to make an announcement on the efficacy of the vaccine against the variant before the end of the week. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. 
Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.